Hello and welcome to Braincast featuring Professor Miguel Maravel. Miguel works on the rodent whisker system to understand how sensory responses are organised. In this episode you'll hear about his early career and background in physics, his work within experimental systems neuroscience and of course sensory neurophysiology research. Hello, welcome to Braincast. My name's Marcus and today I'm joined by Professor Miguel Maraval. He's a professor and co-director of neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Um, he began his career studying physics in Spain, completing his PhD in the US before training in neural systems and behaviour. Since then, neuroscience has taken him around Europe and America. He's been published in several journals in the last 10 years, including Nature, Current Biology and Neuroscience, to name but a few. He's been invited to talk at numerous conferences around Europe in the last five years alone. So without further delay, Professor, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so your background is in physics and your PhD was in physics and astronomy. Uh, so to get to neuroscience, um, you know, that's, you might say that's one giant leap. Um, yeah, it didn't feel like it at, at the time. I um, started off doing summer research internships like the, you know, like the JRA um, with labs at the place where I was studying physics. And uh, I became to get more and more interested in the sort of physics that describes situations where you've got lots and lots of bodies interacting together and giving rise to some kind of emergent collective behavior. Um, so what's known as thermodynamics and with applications to material science and, and so on, and solid state physics. So phase transitions, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I then realized that there was a, someone in the theoretical physics department who was kind of taking models that describe those kind of phase transitions and applying them to what I felt were more exotic and interesting phenomena in biology, so including neural networks and different kinds of models of, of, uh, of neuroscience. And uh, so I, I started working on that actually while I was still an undergrad in, on, in the summers. And... Um, then I thought, okay, I want to continue to do this, you know, to follow up on this idea of applying physics tools, which are like this so super cool and powerful quantitative tools and apply them to problems in biology, which seemed A, maybe more interesting and B, something I could actually get my head around when people were talking about, you know, super string theory and stuff like that. That seemed all very kind of high level for me. So I, um, I then applied to PhD programs in the States and was accepted to one where... There was a chap doing nuclear physics for his day job, but would then kind of moonlight on uh, like various models, of, again, applying these kind of collective interactions to trying to understand the pattern of biological extinctions and stuff like that. So, so I, I never really, you know, it doesn't seem that way from looking at it on the page, but I always had this interest in trying to apply physics tools to biology. And then actually what happened, and this is getting to be a long story, but what happened was that this particular chap who I'd met in the States moved to Denmark. And then I had to choose between staying or leaving and then decided to stay. And then that kind of turned into a whole search for, again, uh, a, a way to apply these physics tools to neuroscience. And that turned into a whole different story of how then that became my whole neuroscience work, which in a way is more fun than the shaggy dog tale I've just told you. That's really interesting. So using software and, and 
statistical methods for physics to describe and, and understand interactions in biological systems was did it start out looking at the brain or was it other so the first uh, the first few things i worked on were um neural network models of associative memory um and those were quite abstract models that had started out in the 60s and 70s and had then kind of become really fashionable with something called the Hopfield model, which was a model for kind of neural networks implementing associative memory, which could be analysed with tools of physics. And, and, I mean, was designed to be analysed with tools of physics. So that's the kind of stuff that I got, I, 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 I fell into and uh, then became involved in applying tools of information theory, measuring the information between basically what comes into the network and what goes out of the network. Uh, so I was, yeah, already from the beginning, kind of learning about all these different ideas that came from engineering and informatics, but also physics, and also applying them to these models of, of the brain. And of course, what was missing there was the ability to collect any kind of experimental data and sort of interrogate those data to understand really closely, you know, what, what they meant. Mm. So, um, so that opportunity only came calling later sort of at, at towards the end of my PhD when I started collaborating with, you know, real experimental neuroscientists. Um, so how mm. would you say, uh, in your experience, the way that we measure and observe the brain has, has been changing? Like, I think there's a latest PhD project on offer about uh, a novel imaging configuration for imaging, well, analysis of neural circuits. Uh, is that right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's sort of the one of the particular techniques I'm interested in. I mean, more generally, I think in your question, if you're asking about tools and their influence on neuroscience, I think, I think, you know, a huge a huge aspect of the evolution of neuroscience has been about tool development, and uh, it's really a very tool driven science. Um, and uh, sometimes to the extent that we we um, we give more importance to the tools and to the questions, you know, and and that's inevitable because we're really conditioned by the available technology and the the available techniques um, in the questions that we can that we can ask. Um, in terms, of, in kind of more personal terms, um, I started off doing experimental neuroscience um, at a time when there was a sort of at the beginning of a huge revolution that's been happening over the past 20, 25 years, which has involved both electrophysiology and also um, optical techniques. Um, and uh, so the group that I fell in with at the, towards the end of my PhD to collaborate with their experiments was probably the most influential or, or one of the most influential groups in the development of two-photon microscopy, um, which is a particular technique uh, involving optical imaging using a confocal microscope scan head, scan head but using a different kind of, of approach to how you excite the, the tissue. And um, <clears throat> it has, uh, you know, a number of of 
advantages that turn out to be absolutely key to achieving um, images from, from intact brain tissue, in particular in vivo, also in slices, in brain slices and so on, but where it really comes into its own is in doing in vivo imaging in an animal that might be, you know, carrying out a behavioral task. I mean, it could be anesthetized, but, but, but you know, you can also do it in an animal carrying out a behavioral task. And uh, it, it works on many different animal models, and it's been joined up with the development of, um, of uh, genetically encoded dyes that can allow you to express an indicator for calcium, for example, or for voltage uh, genetically in, in an animal without needing to kind of add a synthetic dye in. So all of these things have been happening over the past 20 years or so, and to that you can add... Um, optogenetics, which I think you know most most people listening to this will have heard of, which is the ability to um, also express channels or molecules that are sensitive to light and that can affect neural activation or indeed um, uh, intracellular uh, signaling cascades in neurons. And again, the, this can be done in, even in an animal that's intact, otherwise intact and, and performing behavior. And so you can manipulate neural activity and try to ask really try to ask really causal questions about, you know, how, how these neurons affect uh, what's, go what's going on in the brain and, and, and the function of the brain as well. Um, you know, I could go on, you know, there's been huge advances in our ability to target genes to neurons, in our ability to record activity, not just optically, but also electrophysiologically from exponentially increasing numbers of neurons. And all of these things have happened during my lifetime as a neuroscientist, so basically in the last 20 to 25 years. So it's been an incredibly exciting time to be a neuroscientist, but we are not actually, you know, in a way, we're not actually reaping the deeper rewards of that revolution yet, because the this revolution kind of triggers whole new sets of experiments that you can do, and then that in itself generates new data, and then that data kind of leads you to new hypotheses. And in this kind of progressive way, by building on these techniques slowly, we, we're going to achieve much greater insights into, into how the brain works. So in your lab at the moment, how many different sort of techniques do you employ? So I've been really, in a way, you know, not really strategically uh, astute in how I've used techniques in my lab because every time I had a new question, I tried to use the technique that was most appropriate to that question. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, you see labs that are just amazing at setting up a technique and then being able to leverage that technique um, in really powerful ways to, you know, to you know, once you've made the effort to implement that technique, you then kind of, you know, use it as much as you can. In in my lab, we've been more about, yeah, always trying to f look around and find the technique that would um, allow us to address whatever whatever the, ne the next question was that had come into our, into our minds. And so that's tended to mean that we've kind of used a lot of techniques more than you would expect perhaps for a small lab like mine um, and so over the years we've been doing electrophysiology with extracellular recordings electrophysiology with patch clamp recordings two photon imaging optogenetics behavior um, 
Mostly we've been concentrating on T-photon and optogenetics over the past few years, but we also have a couple of electrophysiology data sets that are still waiting to be um, analyzed and completed. Uh, we are really interested in trying to push forward on mouse behavior in the lab, um, which I think is potentially, you know, the next revolution or the next mini revolution waiting to happen is combining all these incredibly powerful techniques for recording and manipulating neural activity with ever more realistic takes on animal behavior. Because I think in, in a sense, um, what's happened over the past 20 years is that as we've adopted these incredibly cool techniques, we've tended to make sure that we could get the most experimental power out of them as possible by constraining what the animals did in the lab, you know, so by, of course, traditionally anesthetizing animals, but more recently, working with awake animals but making them do tasks that were quite artificial and perhaps limited just so we could get enough neural data from them and i think now we're at the point where we can be a little bit more flexible in how we can apply these techniques or, or a little bit more um um, um flexible um and uh we can then uh combine that with behaviors that are perhaps a bit closer to the animal's natural repertoire uh, you mentioned clever and interesting ways of, of leveraging certain techniques. Is there a particular paper uh, you've encountered or your, pa uh, your lab has produced that impressed you with, the, with its use of um, certain technique in a way that you wouldn't expect? Could you describe a little about what that would be? In There's tons of them. There's so many elegant examples of, of you know, just beautiful papers Thankfully, you know, there's always a lot, a lot of inspirational stuff out there. So I've read, okay, things that I've read and seen lately, I, these are slightly left field perhaps because they're not necessarily connected to, to the kinds of imaging I, that I said. But I recently saw a talk by someone and then read their paper, which I was really impressed by, which is a um, someone who was working on kind of social interactions in rats and also fear conditioning in rats who decided that they were going to develop a, um, a drosophila model of some of those same behaviors. Um, and the hope of that was that you could get a good model for things like freezing behavior prompted by danger without get, getting into the kind of some of the spiny ethical issues of causing fear in, in a rodent, which is, after all, a mammal and more closely related to us and so on. And so they developed this entire kind of experimental pipeline for uh, assaying fear in, and freezing in flies. Um, and they actually have this really successful freezing assay in flies. Um, and they were able to look at things like heart rate in the fly when the fly freezes. And it turns out that you can image the fly heart while the fly is engaged in this behavior, mm. like literally look at the heart beating in, in, in real time. Um, and found, so that, that's a current biology paper that was published, I think, in December from uh, Marta Moita's lab in, in, in Lisbon. And yeah, she's really someone who I find super inspiring. Um, another paper that I really liked in the last few months was one... Um, by Marcus Meister, who's best known as an eminent researcher in retinal coding, but he looks at many other things as well. And this particular paper is one where they trained mice to, or actually didn't even train the mice, they just let the mice loose in a in a labyrinth 
to just kind of explore and see what strategies the mice use to explore this labyrinth, you know. And uh, this goes a little bit uh, in the direction I was just saying about letting animals kind of show you their repertoire of natural behavior instead of kind of imposing a constraining kind of assay on them. And, you know, it's this super cool paper where they come up with all these nice quantitative ways of exploring the strategies that mice use to explore the maze and and thereby show that mice can do all this super efficient learning of a new environment within a single shot, basically, you know, within a couple of times that they run through the maze, they've figured out the structure of the maze and where to go. And so this really kind of suggests that we can, um, you know, that letting the mouse or the animal in general use its natural behavioral repertoire can give you a lot, a lot of experimental power in ways that perhaps you, you didn't suspect. And then another interesting thing that I heard lately was we had this talk uh, at Sussex a few days ago by Mackenzie Mathis, who was one of the people developing Le Deep LabCut, which is this revolutionary um, open source tool based on deep learning for just automatically tracking the position and posture and move and motion of animals, no matter whether they're mice or humans or flies, doesn't matter. It you know it works. It just works in this incredible way, and. Um, you know these things all of these things come slightly have come slightly out of left field and rely on the intuition of someone who kind of comes up with a new way to to apply a tool and and to give you an insight that that perhaps you didn't you didn't expect and uh you know they're not necessarily the most expensive new experiment the flashiest new experiment uh but they really illuminate things in new ways. And so that, that those are the kinds of things that really stay with me, I think. Yeah. And actually the deep lab cuts tracking uh, tool was uh, essential to the, for example, to looking at mouse exploration in that other study I was telling you about. So, you know, so these things kind of help each other and build on each other. Yeah. If you had to, to narrow it down, what, what would you say would be the desired use or how do you see your work being used in the next 10 years that's coming out of your lab? So the last kind of big story from our point of view to come out of my lab started off as being one thing and then kind of turned into another. It started off as trying to address the issue of how we, um, how we make sense of stimuli that unfold in the in the environment in the real world so you know most most neuroscience lab designs or most designs involving a behavior that's being tested in a neuroscience lab um, are optimized so that you can make sense of the neural activity and so there are very clear kind of phases in a task that the animal is performing if it's a behavioral experiment and so there's a phase where the animal gets the stimulus then there's another phase where it thinks about it then there's another phase where it has to wait then there's another phase where it can produce its answer which will typically be directed towards achieving a goal right so licking for a reward for example so um in real life of course there are situations like that and the most obvious situation i can think of is one where you just walk to a traffic light the traffic light is red you then wait then the traffic light turns green, then you cross, right? So there's kind of very simple 
dynamics where you know there are things that happen at different times and the stimulus itself doesn't have very interesting dynamics it's either red or green that's it but actually mostly in real life what we're doing is we're interacting with the world in ways in ways that are really heavily structured in time and where the temporal patterning is actually what makes the situation interesting and so you know hopefully if you're making any sense out of what i'm saying now it's because not just of the individual sounds that are coming out of my mouth but because of the order in which i'm putting those sounds and you know when they when they are put together they make phonemes and then those make words and then those make sentences and then the sentences together make a kind of a unit of meaning and then you know that it, that is interpreted in a wider context and so on and so forth and um and so i'm really interested in in how this happens and how this interacts with the animal's own exploration. So sometimes you're receiving this kind of thing passively, right? Most commonly when you're listening to something, uh, to music, for example, or to speech. But very often we're also interacting with these kind of temporal sequences as we explore the world. So our own moving through a scene is kind of shaping the sequence of things that we see or touch or feel or whatever, right? And so... So my thinking when we went into that project was, OK, we're going to come up with ways to train mice to report whenever they see a sequence. So things being ordered in a certain way. Mm. And um, and when we when they do that, what we'll see is that there will be plasticity in their sensory cortex. And suddenly there will be neurons that become sensitive, not just to the individual elements. So again, you know, coming back to what I just said about me speaking and you hearing what I'm saying, not just to the individual kind of elements in the words, but to the words as a whole. So you'll get kind of categorically selective neurons that will respond to the specific sequence that the animal is interested in. So if you like a song, you would have a neuron that, you know, responds to that song, right? And at some point during the presentation of the song, the circuit decides, okay, it's that song, some kind of threshold is activated and the neuron turns on. Who knows how that works? But that was sort of the thing I was, I was aiming towards. Um, or perhaps it's not a specific song, perhaps it's a neuron that turns on whenever something that looks like, say, English grammar is being activated, where, you know, verbs and nouns and so on come in a certain order, and then that's a legal sentence and you can make sense of it. So now you have something that's a sequence that you can use for information. Okay, so that was sort of what, what I was thinking. Then we started training the mice, got the behavior, kind of characterized the strategies that the mice seemed to be using. So mice and humans did about equally well on the particular sequences we came up with. The strategies seemed to be a little bit different. Um, and then we recorded the neural activity. And actually what we found when we recorded neural activity in, in the tactile cortex of the mouse was that responses did not particularly become sensitive to the categorically selective to the targets that the animal was being asked to learn. So in other words, it's not that a neuron lit up when the target sequence was present, independent of everything else that was going on. The neuron lit up, but actually what it learned to do was to light up not just in sensory terms, but neurons became sensitive to the animal's action. So they became more tightly linked to whether the animal was going to lick or not, or to whether the animal was getting rewarded for the lick, whether the reward that was coming was consistent with expectation or not. And all this, even in the somatosensory cortex, in the tactile cortex of, of the animal. So you got this incredible, interesting zoo of neural responses, even in, in sensory cortex. And, you know, we're not the only ones who have seen that. People have found that in... 
um, other systems as well. So in the visual system, in the auditory system, you get the, this incredibly rich array of responses that color the sensory information with all the contextual stuff that was happening at the time that the sensory information came in. And so the picture of sensory cortex that we inherited from you know, the neuroscience of the mid 20th century, that neurons have these beautiful tuning to sensory stimuli is still true, but is incomplete because actually neurons in real life are being driven not just by the sensory stimulus itself, but by the relationship of that sensory stimulus to what you're predicting, to the behavior you're engaged in when you get the sensory stimulus, to the rewards that you expect for that behavior. And some of those things make a lot of sense. So for example, you would expect that there would be some modulation by upcoming actions in a sensory cortex, mm. especially if it's a cortex that's involved in active sensing. So for example, if I'm grabbing this mug now to make sense of the sensory info that's coming from my fingers, I need to know that I'm actually you know, reaching for the mug and I'm likely to hit it now because that's where I think my hand is going. And therefore, you know, that allows me to kind of expect the neural activity that comes from my finger just bashing against the mug, right? If I'm, you know, moving my head around, I need to know like what's going on with my head so that I can make, make sense of the visual information that's coming in. So all these things make a lot of sense and you would expect some kind of broadcast of my actions getting into the sensory areas to make sense of the sensory information. And people have seen that and that all makes sense. But there's much more, there's, there's a finer scale activity as well. So for example, the fact that we found responses selective to the reward that the animal was getting and whether that reward was expected or not, you know, that doesn't, it's not so clear why you would need that. It's not so clear why the copies of the actions that the animal is gonna take were actually happening before the action and not afterwards. So it's like the responses, even in sensory cortex, reflect the actions you're planning to take, not just the ones you, you're already taking, but they predict the action that's going to happen. And so there's several possible explanations for that, um, which we're gearing up to test in the lab now. Things like, for example, well, maybe if we train the mouse to do this kind of thing, over and over and over again and the entire life of the mouse is spent kind of in the lab doing this task where all the time it's kind of associating the same uh, stimulus with looking for a reward then you know from a point of view of optimally organizing your cortex if you've got a cortex that's very plastic what's the point of having all the higher areas if you're always being trained on the same thing right so at that point, you might as well just essentially create a new reflex arc through sensory cortex straight to the places that drive the response. Just like, you know, if you get hit on your kneecap, it's worth investing in a reflex that's right there from your from birth that kind of moves your leg, you know. Um, so so in the same way, you know, if if every time you hear the same song, you're going to get rewarded. There's no point in listening through to the end of the song. You just go for your reward the minute the first three notes come on. Or if you hate the song, you know, if you've heard it 2,000 times and the song is always going to be associated with the same action, then the neurons in your auditory cortex that pick up those th same three notes could just as well be wired out directly to your basal ganglia or whatever to choose the action that consists of switching off the damn radio. And then you don't have to listen to the song anymore. So... 
it's possible that we're create you know unwittingly by teaching the mouse to fix behavior creating these weird reflex loops that people had hadn't really suspected until a few years ago and this would give us a deeper understanding of the rules of conditioning and how they're actually implemented in, in cortex so that you know that's partly what we're thinking of the other side of the other side of the work that i think is is or of the finding that i think is really interesting is that um okay so there's two other sides or maybe it's all the same maybe it's all connected i don't know so the 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 other the other parts of the work that i think are really interesting is okay so we've shown this happens when we um train the animal to associate these target stimuli with one fixed action but it may be that um we would get a different thing when the stimulus is presented to the animal, the animal becomes familiar with it, but it doesn't lead to an action or not in the same way. And the rules of the behavior are different. They're not as fixed. Um, and so we think that cortex, that responses even in sensory cortex, reflect the rules of the behavior or the rules of the task, if you like, at the time that you learn those responses. And um, and that in turn means that we don't feel stimuli, we don't feel the sensory stimulus fundamentally in the same way every time. How we feel the stimulus, how we encode that stimulus in our cortex depends on what that stimulus is useful for and how how the stimulus predicts what our action should be. And, you know, what we've learned to expect is next going to happen to us when we encounter that stimulus and so on. And so if that's the case, then that links our findings pretty directly to notions of embodied sensing and embodied cognition and predictive coding and so on that are super in intriguing and super interesting and have been around for, for many years in different ways.